0: And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about a racist police killing in Brazil. Also going to be talking about the U.S. Southern Command, the Monroe Doctrine, and U.S. imperialism in the Americas, and much, much more. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind.
1: We well, you know, politicians are desperate when they take to the late night talk show rounds. And yes, Joseph Biden looked as desperate as you think he might be on Jimmy Kimmel last night. It seems odd that Biden would want to go on Jimmy Kimmel's show since the demographic that watches Kimmel the most are 18 to 49-year-olds, you know, the group of people drowning under student loan debt that Biden won't cancel, who can't afford to rent a one-bedroom apartment anywhere in this country on most of their salaries and certainly not on the minimum wage that Biden refuses to raise, the people who are inheriting a climate catastrophe that Biden has done nothing to avert, and the people who can't to can't afford health care that Biden isn't going to do anything about. Did he think he was going to win over those people with his mumbling, rambling, sometimes coherent appearance on the show? Of course, Jimmy Kimmel didn't bring up any of those pesky meat and potatoes issues and pretty much let Biden wax eloquent on his meager accomplishment on, of all things, climate and the economy. I told you they were meager accomplishments. But they talked a lot about gun control, to which Biden said he would not issue an executive order on because he didn't want to abuse the Constitution with executive orders like Trump did. And Biden said that it is voters who need to make gun control a voting issue, pretty much shrugging the responsibility for doing something about gun violence onto voters. And while it's sure true that Republicans and the NRA are stumbling blocks to getting anything legislative done in this regard, I think it's telling that the man with the power of the executive order pen, who could do something that might save people from gun violence with an executive order on gun control, went on late night TV to definitively tell America that he is not going to do what he could do and that it's all on us. And according to him, it's all because of Trump. And Speaking of gun control, the House of Representatives has approved a package of limited reforms on federal gun laws. The Protecting Our Kids Act passed Wednesday by a vote of 223 to 204, mostly along party lines with five Republicans in support and two Democrats voting against it the bill would raise the minimum age for purchasing semi-automatic firearms from 18 to 21, ban magazines of more than 15 rounds, and toughen penalties for gun traffickers and straw purchasers of firearms. A separate bill dealing with red flag laws that could allow authorities to keep guns out of the hands of people judged to represent a threat to themselves or their communities will be voted on today in the House, but Neither of them will pass the Senate. Of course, Republicans attacked the bills as unserious, partisan, and an effort that would infringe on Americans' constitutional rights. At a news press conference Wednesday, Representative Jim Jordan, Republican of Ohio call the House bills an effort, quote, to destroy the Second Amendment, end quote, saying further that the House legislation tells Americans law-abiding citizens when they can buy a firearm, what kind of firearm they can get, and where and how they have to store it in their own darn home, a direct attack on Second Amendment rights. Just to be clear, just in case people are confused, the Second Amendment simply states a well-regulated militia, comma, being necessary to the security of a free state, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, comma, shall not be infringed. Now, aside from the legal arguments over whether the Second Amendment refers to organizing militias in regard to the right to bear arms or individual rights to bear arms, the word that intrigues me in the Second Amendment is infringe. That word means to act so as to limit or undermine something, encroach on, weaken or erode something. When I think about it, law-abiding citizens having to adhere to certain regulations that would keep people who should not own guns from purchasing them and having to adhere to storage safety requirements to keep their own doggone family members safe is not limiting or undermining one's right to own a gun any more than requiring a license and insurance infringes on anyone's right to own a car. What those regulations speak to, I think, can be related back to two words at the beginning of the Second Amendment, and they are well-regulated. If the militia is directed to be well-regulated under the Second Amendment, and they are still afforded the right to bear arms, then why do people believe that individuals fall outside of the direction to be well-regulated in their right to bear arms? Look, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a constitutional scholar, but sometimes the so-called reasoning that those opposed to any and all gun control legislation come up with just does not pass the simple logic test when you compare it to the constitutional holy grail of the Second Amendment that they're always citing. Follow Luke Mann Nation on patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content.
0: And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By
2: Any Means Necessary.
0: And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say. We're now happy to be joined by Dave Lindorf, investigative journalist, editor of the online publication ThisCan'tBeHappening.net, and a 2019 winner of an Izzy Award for Outstanding Independent Media. Dave, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Hi. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely. And Dave, uh, here recently on the show, we've been discussing this uh, recently passed uh, uh, just positively uh, gargantuan $40 billion uh, aid package to Ukraine on the part of the U.S. government. And uh, I wanted to have a conversation today about just uh, what that money is actually going to, because one could get the impression that, you know, every penny of this 40 billion is going to weapons. But but I don't believe that's actually the case. And you recently published a piece about this very thing on this can't be happening dot net. And so I was hoping you could break down, you know, uh, where this money is really going and how you see that piece playing out.
3: Yeah, uh, when I broke it down, you know, looking at what's in it. I, I looked at a number of articles, did a, 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 some research on the bill um, that, you know, it's uh, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors in it. Um, <laughs> and it's it, it it's only I could only find and I say only in quotes because it's still a lot of money. seventeen billion of that money is for actual weapons and training to use those weapons, um, for, for Ukrainian military forces. Um, and the rest of it is, um, you know, a variety of things that don't have to do with, um, with weapons, but do have to do with the war. There's also a a funny sleight of hand because there's 11 billion that is called a drawdown of um, supplies in the U.S. military. You know, either whether on basis in Europe or in the U.S. that were uh, that were going to be shipped to Ukraine. So they're they're already existing. Paid for weapons within the U.S. military um, assets, and they, you know, so technically, giving that, uh, they're they're reimbursing the military for those items so that they can buy them over again, right? But they also are uh, authorizing nine billion dollars to arms makers to buy replacement weapons for those drawdown weapons so they're actually double double counting and i'm not sure whether that's uh means that they're spending $20 billion on the weapons and just paying for them twice once, <laughs> once, by, once by giving the money to the arms industry and once to give money back to the Pentagon budget, which, of course, is struggling. Um, ha-ha. So I, I think it's, a, it's actually just a giveaway of $9 billion to the U.S. arms industry um, for weapons that the Pentagon's going to buy anyway with the money that they got. So uh, that's one funny part. There's $4 billion that's for European command operations, which basically is overhead for NATO. Um, you know, so that the officers can have nice apartments, good good limousines and all of that. So that's not really weapons at all. There's a billion dollars to defray costs to Ukraine and other nations in Europe for handling some of the 6 million refugees fleeing the fighting. Now, 2.5 of those uh, million are uh, f- actually leaving Ukraine, so that money's probably going to countries that are receiving them. And the other 3.5 million are within Ukraine, so some of it may be going to Ukraine to uh, defray the costs of, of taking care of those refugees from, say, the fighting areas to the areas that are just getting bombed occasionally and aren't fighting. Um and then there's another nine million in economic aid to war-impacted countries. It's not clear what those countries are. Some of it may be going to Ukraine, some may be going to the other countries that are suffering from the effect of U.S. sanctions. So altogether, there's only 17 billion that's actually, uh, you know, uh, lethal weaponry and training for those weapons. And I, I haven't seen that expressed clearly. But, but now I, I still would say that that's an enormous amount of money. $17 billion is half of the entire U.S. food aid budget that the State Department allocates to countries that are facing starvation from either you know partly uh climate change issues and also uh from the higher prices that they have to pay for energy and for food because of the uh of the impact of the war in Ukraine
1: now the US government is sending 4 billion dollars to NATO headquarters to keep the lights on and so the uh military brass can have nice apartments and uh, nice accoutrements in their positions and uh, nine million dollars for whatever economic aid to war impacted countries mean. Meanwhile, in the United States, here we are um, enduring the high prices uh, of inflation and probably facing a recession and already even as uh, this uh, $40 billion uh, is really, as you really well lay out in your piece, kind of the sleight of hand of where this money is actually going, just that $40 billion alone is a, a, a pretty obscene benchmark compared to the military budgets, the entire annual military budgets of other countries, including Russia. So could you break that down for people a little, a little bit to understand just how much money this is, this one aid package, the seventh in a series of aid packages that the Biden administration approved for, for Ukraine alone, compared to how much certain countries spend on their entire defense departments in an entire year?
3: Yeah, there. you know, there's two ways to look at it, and I chose to take the conservative one. Just you know, I mean, you could you could go with the forty billion, and then it would be almost equal to Germany's entire military budget and two thirds of uh, of Russia's twenty twenty one military budget of sixty six billion dollars. Um, I didn't do that just because uh, I felt like. You know, I'd be conservative and I'd take the amount that's actually going towards arms and uh, training for the Ukrainian military and use the $17 billion. But if you do that, even then, it's, uh, what, 17 34 40 $50. It's uh, more than somewhere between a third and a fourth of the entire Russian military budget going to Ukraine in just a period of three months. And uh, and it's also, you have to look at it compared to Ukraine's military budget. Ukraine uh, had a military budget last year for the entire year of $6 billion, and they're being given $17 billion. Now, there's no way that the Ukrainian military can, uh, you know, onboard that amount of weapons, and uh and assets and money i mean it's just like uh, absurd to think so and we are getting reports that uh ukrainians can't uh can't use the weapons i mean they all they have to be trained a lot you know a lot of the ukrainian military at this point which has been you know hammered in fighting the uh the russian military as as chaotic as the russian uh Uh, invasion has been. um, A lot of Ukraine's military has been chewed up, either killed or wounded and unable to fight. And so they've been drafting people uh, up to the age, I think, I think up to the age of 60. I may have that wrong. Uh, But they've got, you know, that teachers and, and accountants and, you know, postal workers and, you know, all kinds of people in the, their forces who have been drafted to fight uh, and are being asked to use high-tech military equipment that uh, when they haven't even been uh, adequately trained to uh, shoot a rifle. So there's a lot of training that would be needed. Um, so a lot of this is just dumping uh, assets in ukraine um and when you as you point out you know uh this country has its own expenses uh, that it isn't covering we we're they're shifting money around now to try to uh, pay for new vaccine research and uh, development and production because they can't get congress to pass the needed uh, funds to uh, to develop further vaccines. The crisis is supposed to be over, even though it's not. Uh, you know, we have I don't know how many tens of millions of Americans are hungry. You know, kids and, and others because are, uh, their parents are underemployed. Um, you know, the needs in this country are awesome. And the idea that we're, you know, pissing away this phenomenal amount of money casually uh, to toss into this hopper uh, without the, it's likely having much effect on the outcome uh, is just uh, stunningly awful.
0: Yeah, and why do you think that is? Like, what do you think is the motivation for just the the dumping of these assets? I mean, it seems like the U.S., NATO, and the West seem intent- on, you know, dragging this uh, war out as long a- as possible. And, uh, uh, you know, one would think that they would want to direct uh, this money towards, <laughs> I guess, just that very effort, a- as horrible as it is. And, you know, even in your piece, you talk about, you know, the some of the potential impacts from this. And, and so that that's really my question. Like, why is this? The 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 stance of uh, the U.S. government in terms of where this money is going, if it's not like directly um, uh, sort of benefiting uh, the the Ukraine military in the way that one would think they would want to, and uh, how do you see this uh, money actually being used?
3: Well, my suspicion, and I didn't go into this into the article, but so I'm glad I have a chance to point it out here. My suspicion is that uh, you know it's it's clear that. Ukraine can't defeat Russia uh, in this war. Um, you know, they, what they can do is they can make it very costly for Russia, uh, and they they have you know some of the Ukrainian fighters have done a, a you know fairly a, a impressive job of holding off the advance of the Russian military. But I think to an extent that that Russia had not anticipated and Putin hadn't ad- anticipated. But that said. Um, the Russians are not going to lose. They're not going to walk away from this uh, and leave Ukraine. And the Ukraine is uh, being pressured by the U.S. Uh, clearly to not negotiate. And part of that is showing them that we're that we have their backs. So we, since we can't send troops because of nuclear weapons uh, that Russia has, and we can't do a uh, you know a uh, No fly zone that denies, uh, you know, that allows the U.S. to bomb uh, or or Ukrainians to attack Russian uh, military equipment with impunity because it can't. They can't. uh, They can't send in their own planes. uh, If that were possible, then uh, this war just drags on and on, and we just have to. convince the Ukrainians to keep on fighting a losing situation. Uh, and, and we've made it clear. I mean, it was stated by Biden. It was stated by Blinken, the the uh, Secretary of State, that uh, the U.S. Uh, would like to have the Ukrainian war go on and weaken Russia for the next 20 years. You know, not 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 the war go on, but cause so much damage to Russia that uh, it destroys their economy, it destroys their military, and uh, leaves the country weakened for another generation. Um, that's a goal. But It's a goal that will be very, very, very costly to the people of Ukraine. And, uh, you know, as Lula, the uh, soon-to-be new president of Brazil, um, you know, this October when they have their next presidential election, uh, has, you know, made a point that You know, all the people of the third world are suffering because of the rising prices of fuel, which is astonishing—a dollar twenty a barrel now uh, for oil. And uh, and also the natural gas prices, which are, are used to make fertilizer, which is made, cost the cost of fertilizer to soar to also astronomical levels. So these countries are suffering. Plus, they can't even uh, pay for wheat, which is a, a staple around the world. Uh, and that's soared because Ukraine is, I think, the largest uh, producer and exporter of wheat in the world, followed by Russia which also can't export its wheat because uh, its ships uh, can't uh, deliver things to other ports. So, it, you know, he's saying, you know, I can't believe that the U.S. is doing this, that it's it's damaging the people of Africa, especially more so than Brazil. He was speaking out for the third world in general. I think Brazil is better off than some uh, because they're destroying their their, their Amazon rainforest to, to grow crops you know agricultural crops so uh, they they're better off for the short term than you know countries in Africa and some uh, poorer Latin American countries but it's all because of this war so you know it can't it can't go on uh, it it I think Eric Draitzer has who, who's been you know, critical of Russia and this invasion has uh, uh, recently said that things are the tide is kind of turning against Ukraine at this point, and that's not surprising. It's a much smaller country with a much smaller military.
1: Yeah. And, you know, certainly uh, not just uh, other countries around the world are suffering because of this war. But honestly, people in the United States are, too. We are as well. And how do you think, Dave, the uh, Biden administration's uh, uh, press junket, and him appearing on Jimmy uh, Kimmel and even, you know, the Democratic uh, Party, the House committee televising the January 6th hearings. How much do you think that is really a deflection from the fact? that this war is becoming unpopular, even in the United States, because of the economic blowback that people in this country are facing, and the Democrats really can't explain it.
3: That's exactly right. I mean, that eventually this is going to stop because Ukrainians are going to get sick of the, of the killing and the destruction. Americans are going to get sick because of the costs and not any clear sense of why we're doing this other than, you know, emotional identification with the white people being bombed and stuff in Ukraine and driven out of their country. Uh, that's going to wear thin. Uh, the Europeans are going to stop because as soon as it starts getting cold, they're not going to be able to buy the natural gas they need from Russia to heat their homes. And, and uh, you know, they're going to they're just going to say enough, you know, basta.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Dave, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any
0: Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luquemann. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about developments inside Brazil. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Brian Meir, co editor of Brazil Wire and the author of Year of Lead Washington, Wall Street, and the New Imperialism in Brazil. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Brian, here recently in Brazil, we've been seeing a, a protest that have been taking place uh, following the death of a black man uh, who uh, reportedly uh, uh, died while he was inside of the trunk of a police car that was filled with tear gas, and the man was identified as Genivaldo de Jesus Santos, uh, 38 years old. And I was hoping you could just uh, uh, just describe to us. I mean, what happened here uh, with Genivaldo? And I can't help but feel that uh, this is perhaps indicative of some broader issues happening inside Brazil.
4: Well, um, first of all, as everyone knows, Brazil has a long legacy of really horrible human rights records, uh, you know, uh, involving the police. In Rio de Janeiro on an average year, just in the state of Rio, police killed 1,600, 1,700 people officially, most unarmed at the time. Many of them shot at close range in the back of the head while they're kneeling. And uh, what a lot of people don't know, because this was used against Dilma Rousseff during the lead up to the impeachment, is that the president doesn't have much control over the police. Uh, The police in Brazil, the state, uh, the military police, who are the ones you normally hear involved in these atrocities, are controlled officially by the state governor, but they have connections to the military as well. But the, the Workers' Party tried to outlaw the, the military police three times while Lula and Dilma were present through constitutional amendment and always blocked by conservative members of their own coalition. But what, ha- what makes this case different with Genivaldo is that it was the federal highway police who answered directly to President Jair Bolsonaro who have been involved in an increasing number of human rights violations since Bolsonaro took office in 2019. What they did to Genivaldo is they stopped him in a routine traffic stop uh, for wearing not wearing a helmet on a motorcycle, which is something that the president himself has done repeatedly in these publicity events, uh, where he has these um, Mussolini-style motorcades you know, always him and his henchmen riding around with no helmets. So they stopped Genevaldo. Uh, they saw he was on meds. He, he was schizophrenic. Uh, the guy who was with him, who was driving the motorcycle, told the police, please be careful. He's He's got mental health issues. And so they decided to beat him, l- lock him into their trunk, and fill the trunk with pepper sc- spray, turning it effectively into... A kind of mobile gas chamber, which is what the Nazis used with their gas vans in cities like Belgrade in World War II. Um, It's a Nazi form of extermination, and they were so, you know, nonchalant about it. They did it in front of bystanders who were filmed, who filmed it, you know, and uh, so. as as the spin immediately took off that oh these are just like two bad apples like you always see when police commit murder um another video surfaced of a a class a preparatory class for young people studying for the civil service exam to become federal highway police from two years ago in which the teacher a federal highway police officer is explaining to the students how to lock people in trunks and fill the trunks up with pepper spray as a torture device and laughing about it. And so it's something, it's not just this one-off random thing. The way it was done suggests that this is something that's commonly being used right now by the the, the Federal Highway Police, and it's coming off of the heels of a massacre in Rio de Janeiro in the Complexo de Peña favela, where 26 people, almost all Afro-Brazilian were murdered by the police. Supposedly, there was an exchange of gunshots, but some people who were killed were just sitting in their houses at the time, hit with stray bullets. And and that was also perpetrated by the highway police, which is unusual because not, it wasn't anywhere near a highway, for one, it wasn't even in their jurisdiction. And so it's a sign that, you know, Bolson. this is the Bolsonaro influence on the highway police. It's not just another... Uh, in a long series of military police atro- atrocities in Brazil, it's a different division of the police that responds directly to the president,
1: yeah, and these kinds of crimes against humanity that are committed by the highway police sound a lot like uh, what you mentioned the the actions of the SS, the actions of the Gestapo, and People in uh, Brazil, like uh, a noted historian, Douglas Belchiar, who is coordinator of uh, Uniafro Brazil, um, uh, and many people in the black rights movement in Brazil are likening uh, the federal highway police to the SS and the Gestapo. So, you know, what? is the uh, the organizational response, uh, you know, on the ground to clearly what it seems to be Bolsonaro's legitimization of his new uh, Gestapo force in
4: Brazil. Well, first of all, he didn't condemn the actions. The first thing he said was, well, you know, I wasn't there. I didn't see what I guess you'd have to see what really happened to before you would um, condemn the officers for anything. Uh, They're being tried internally within the department, which, you know, anyone who's followed the career of Lori Lightfoot, Chicago mayor, former police board director, knows how much the police like to bury uh, accusations of human rights abuses internally. Meanwhile, the executive director of uh, in relation to these two successive scandals, you know, the massacre in Rio de Janeiro and then this horrible murder. At the same time that they're saying it has nothing to do with it, the executive director of the Federal Highway Police and the intelligence director of the Federal Highway Police, Jean Coelho and Alan Rabello, announced that they're resigning. And guess what? They're going. To, they're moving to Washington, D.C. to teach at the OAS, the Organization of American States Inter-American Defense College. They've both got two-year gigs moving up there. So, It's not just the Bolsonaro administration that seems to not have much of a problem with this. Yeah. And I was just
0: thinking too, Brian, about how um, like the military police and just the role that they play in Brazilian society. I mean, mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was that same uh, military police institution that uh, the assassinated Marielle Franco uh, uh, was often organizing against in terms of of the violence that they carry through in the favelas and in the poor neighborhoods and things like this. And so how do you see the uh, uh, military uh, police. How they've been operating, sort of under the the Bolsonaro government. I mean, you mentioned earlier about how there were attempts to just um, ban them under a couple of different presidents.
4: But what's the relationship like between the Bolsonaro government and these military police? Well, the thing you know, the thing about the military police is that I mean, you have to be careful. I I I'm not obviously going to tr- ever try to defend Bolsonaro, but you have to be careful to. Specify that they don't answer to the president. You know, ah, they're right. they're controlled by the governors, unlike the highway police. You know, which do answer to the president. Um, he's encouraged. You know, like a uh, a climate of increased human rights abuses by military police. You know, he encourages it. He encourages violence against leftists and gays and and Afro Brazilians constantly, as well as a culture of rape. But there's not that much of a direct connection um at least officially you know however uh it's also important to note that the military police vary from state to state a lot you know like some states have like rio de janeiro this 1700 deaths a year average that's unusual in brazil right it doesn't uh sao paulo has over has twice the population of rio de janeiro and the police kill a couple hundred people a year still horrible you know um, with less um, percentage being Afro-Brazilian. Um, but, you know, as some states, like, only the police only kill a couple people a year. So it varies a lot by state by state, you know, state by state, which means they have a lot of autonomy. So if they have a really bad governor, they can become kind of like the governor's, you know, um, death squad, and that you know we've seen cases of that happening in Sao Paulo in the past and in Rio in the la- the last couple of governors and in the case of Rio especially most of the police when they're off duty they belong to these kinds of right-wing paramilitary militias that were implicated in the killing of Marielle Franco they were all you know uh, allegedly off-duty police who did that so it's a legacy of the military dictatorship they should have been disbanded when the dictatorship ended, but um because of the coalition of forces at the time, they gave too much leeway to former actors in the dictatorship. So like Brazil never really like demilitarized its police. And it never even really demilitarized society that much because the official military dictatorship political party was able to keep its power in Congress and the Senate to this day. So it's a complicated scenario, but you know, if you look at any country that had slavery uh, in the Americas, there's always much higher levels of police human rights abuses. I mean, if you want to look back, it's really a legacy of slavery. I mean, these are organizations that were created to catch escaped slaves originally.
1: Mm. And so, you know, I wonder, Brian, how the movement in the streets against racist police terrorism in Brazil is taking shape against uh, confronting the political realities that you just uh, mentioned. Is there organization around uh, confronting the political apparatus that uh, allows for the continued militarization and uh, political campaigning for uh, uh, government officials uh, to be elected who will dismantle? this uh, militarized political system?
4: Well, I'm really glad you asked this because there's a false narrative being pushed in the Anglo media. In part, I saw this BBC documentary about it, that it's black women evangelical Christians who are supporting Bolsonaro. And the polling data has consistently shown since 2018, the, the least likely democrat, demographic group to vote for Bolsonaro are Afro-Brazilians, and especially Afro-Brazilian women. At this point, uh, the, the percentage of Afro-Brazilian women saying they're going to vote for Bolsonaro is under half of the percentage that are planning on voting for Lula. Yet the the Anglo media is pushing this. They find a few examples of evangelical Christian conservatives who happen to be afro-brazilian push that's in the same way that there was this narrative to push the idea that like trump's base was all working class when most trump voters seem to be like 75 jet ski shop owners from the suburbs making seventy-five thousand dollars a year or something you know i mean remember they were even pushing like this idea that trump is more popular among black voters than 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 normal republicans and things like that well they, it seems like they're trying to do the same thing about bolsonaro i've seen things reporting in the guardian about this and in bbc and it's just untrue that it does it's not held up by any kind of statistical analysis the movement the main movement among the afro-brazilian movements in brazil right now is to work as hard as possible to get rid of bolsonaro and then from that point society can start rebuilding its severely damaged rule of law and hopefully push to a point where the military police can be dissolved. That fight can be retaken. And if the military police are resolved, uh, I mean, if the military police are eliminated, that would be a very important first step in drastically reducing racist police violence in Brazil.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Brian, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the U.S. Southern Command, Monroe Doctrine, and U.S. imperialism in the Americas. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation today by Erica Keynes, founder of Liberation Through Reading and editor of Hood Communist Blog. Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, Erica, as Joe Biden's uh, summit of the Americas is uh, playing out to be exactly the kind of flop that I think a lot of us uh, expected it to be. I mean, it definitely seems relevant to really take a hard look at um, U.S. uh, foreign policy and really U.S. imperialism, to put a finer point on it. Um, in the Americas and how that plays out both historically and in the contemporary moment. Uh, You recently published a piece about justice issue for Hoodcommunist.org entitled The Empire's Front Yard and the Monroe Doctrine. And uh, you make a note of remarks that Joe Biden made as president back in January of this year during a press conference where he said, quote, We used to talk about when I was a kid in college about America's backyard. It's not America's backyard. Everything south of the Mexican border is America's front yard and we're equal people. We don't dictate what happens in any part of that of this continent or the South American continent. We have to work very hard on it. But the trouble is we're having great difficulty making up for the mistakes that were made the last four years. And it's going to take some time. So basically, Biden is saying here that, you know, uh, his predecessor, Donald Trump, treated uh, uh, the hemisphere or the region like America's backyard. But actually, according to Biden, it's the front yard, which I mean, you know, is is phrased in a somewhat more uh, friendly way. But I mean, think ultimately the implications there are largely the same. And obviously, a lot to to get in into there, Erica. But uh, how do you connect this kind of front yard, backyard thinking with you know uh, uh, like the U.S. Southern Command and this kind of Monroe Doctrine ideology that sort of fuels it,
5: right? Well, when Biden first came um, into office, a lot of people argued that he'd be easier to organize under, um, that he would end the crippling sanctions from the Trump administration, he would close migrant encampments, he would protect TPS with an actual safety net. But instead, what we saw um, Biden and his administration, they ignored the months of mass protests in Haiti. Um, and vehemently defended the now assassinated Haitian president, Jovenel Germ- Moises, of constitutional state office, attempted to capitalize on uh, the minimal protests uh, in Cuba to gain favor for right wing Miami based Cubans and continue attempts to destabilize that country. Um, in fact, the administration spent its entire first year agitating uh, Cuba from outright refusal to remove Cuba from the state-sanctioned terrorist list um, to accusing Cuba's overseas medical program of human trafficking and then voting against ending the blockade um, and then placing more additional sanctions on the island nation. And then we see Kamala Harris outright uh, tell Guatemalans not to come here we witnessed Haitians get whipped at the border, more funding for ICE. And just yesterday, the, uh, the new press secretary ignorantly stated that the Biden administration will continue to show support for one light of. So the use of front yard here is just to shy away from the administration's clear attempts at continuing the racist one wrong doctrine. So in my piece, I lay out how that's done through particular institutions of soft power, uh, like the OAS. Um, like core group, like dead, like uh, USAID, and then uh, through militarization, like South Carolina.
1: Yeah, it, the United States is absolutely continuing this uh, uh, Monroe Doctrine. And it's interesting that they use, uh, you know, Biden used the phrase at front yard as if it's somehow better than backyard. It all con- uh, connotates ownership. It really all signals the idea that these countries are literally owned by the United States and the policies of these uh, organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy and uh, the U.S. Agency for International Development and the Organization of American States, all the alphabet agencies that you'd have to work hard to find their line items in the federal budget, use a lot of money, millions and millions of dollars to uh, use what is, Called what you point out as soft power in these countries in the U.S.'s so-called front yard. So, what are some of the examples uh, of these organizations doing just that, Ricky?
5: Yeah, institutions like the National Endowment for Democracy um, or NED, they're a private nonprofit foundation. So, uh, it's supposed to be a democratic institution around the world, but. Um, we can recognize that's work in, uh, there's countless times, I think you talked about it, um, under my Eastern European government, especially, uh, in, in the situation was happening in Ukraine. Uh, we can recognize it in the 2019 Hong Kong protests, uh, in 2021. Uh, in the summer of 2021, they had a lot to do with the Cuban protests as, as, as far as the song, the song that sort of, uh, was the, uh, I guess the backbone or the, the background music for the SOS Cuba campaign. Um, a lot of that was led through uh, the National Endowment of Democracy, which um, they institute, It's they instigate students and youth into taking stances against their uh, left-wing governments in uh, potential color revolutions. But that doesn't act on its own. It is in partnership with the United States Agency for International Development or USAID or USAID. And that's also a private uh, international development agency, and it funds that. So USAID is used to advance uh, national security and economic prosperity. But um, as the co-founder of NED, which I quote in the piece, uh, Alan Weinstein told the Washington Post in 1991, a lot of what we do today, please quote, a lot of what we do today was done covertly 25 years ago by the CIA, uh, quote, so that, and the USAID are just two examples of that. But they are not the only soft power mechanisms because the Organization of American States functions as that, as well as the core group.
0: Yeah. And, you know, even this phrase, uh, soft power, is interesting to me, Erica, because although, I mean, what you're describing, these NGOs, these uh, regime change uh, institutions, these, you know, state-backed organizations that literally exist to violate uh, democracy and human rights. I mean, it doesn't look the same as, you know, bombs and drones and boots on the ground, but I mean, a lot of the impacts are just as devastating. And even if we're talking about, uh, quote-unquote, hard power in discussing the Southern Command, which is a part of a network of different military commands that the U.S. literally has in place to uh, split up the earth. Uh, There's, you know, CENTCOM, Indo-Pacific Command, Africa com, Northcom, and uh, a Space Command, even a Space com. And so how have we seen historically the Southern Command um, operating in the region? and what do you see as uh, the ripple effects of some of these operations as they seem to be kind of the lancing arm uh, of U.S imperialism and military might uh, in the region?
5: Right. South Park works to extend uh, U.S. military influence throughout the Americas. So it promotes military, militarism uh, that's in line with U.S. Interest, interests. Uh, so we always hear the, the claims of humanitarian assistance with disaster relief, but um, it also uh, says drug trafficking and uh, terrorism, etc. But The it's a lie, the the humanitarianism. And that's made evident by just simply looking at the operations that South Carolina has been involved in. Um, In the piece, I know a few of them, but um, I think that one that's that's significant that people, what your listeners may really remember is Operation Plan Columbia, where the United States rapidly increased intelligence and logistics and training in Columbia uh, in the fight against drug trafficking, in which they enlisted South Carolina. and then, uh, under Plan Columbia, government troops and associated paramilitaries were given free raids to kill whomever they felt, uh, as long as they were able to frame the victims as far guerrillas. So Joe Biden proudly proclaims that he is the guy that put Plan Columbia together. Um, and he worked across the aisles because he always likes to say that, but he worked across the aisles with Republicans to push this hardline strategy. And currently he's looking to, um, Propose a plan for Central America based on his Columbia model. But then also, uh, a more recent operation, uh, that's not talked about, uh, because I think we f- we focus a lot on Central America and Latin America, but not too much on the Caribbean, especially the English speaking Caribbean. Uh, there's an operation with South Carolina called Operation Trade with, uh, which recently, I believe two weeks ago, just completed, um, their training uh, in Belize and in Mexico. But it's a collusion of militarized white supremacy of Latvian colonialism in the Caribbean. So participants are nations like Guyana, Brazil, Bahamas, Barbados, Belize, uh, Bermuda, Dominican Republic, Jamaica, Trinidad, and Tobago. And it is, the South Com is is in combination with uh, the United Kingdom, Canada, France, and the Netherlands. So I always like to make people aware that this is another uh, form of a NATO alliance that's happening in that region. These are NATO forces coming together to train um, Caribbean military and have military exercises uh, to ensure continued strength and influence of the West. So I always like to emphasize that because I think that folks understand NATO in one way, but they don't understand or see that it it's spreading its tentacles way beyond the North Atlantic. We understand that Africa is an extension of NATO and Southcom should also be seen as an extension of NATO as well.
1: And, Erica, the way the United States uh, frames their operations uh, with terms like transnational criminal organizations, that, you know, they're doing these operations to target transnational criminal organizations, they're providing humanitarian assistance, and even saying that they're providing or carrying out disaster relief operations, Th- these are really just euphemisms. Uh, and what are they euphemisms for if this, these activities are not really what going on with these Southcom operations.
5: Right. I always like to say like, uh, when the U.S. talks about democracy and when they talk about human rights, um, it's just ideological props. Uh, we, we especially can see that with the exclusion of Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela, these are democratic nations, sever- sovereign nations as well, uh, but they're excluded. Uh, but the uh, Ariel Henry in Haiti, uh, who is not uh, a democratically elected uh, leader, was invited. So the U.S., uh, especially the Biden administration, is just full of all kinds of hypocrisy. And as Jabou Baraka noted, when we see the exclusion of Nicaragua and Cuba and Venezuela, you know, these relatively poor uh, nations under sanctions, and them being able to build housing and eliminate homelessness and offer free education, universal health care, etc., these are the kind of human rights that are unrealizable for people of the U.S., especially Africans. So the so so the Biden administration uh, is really full of hypocrisy.
0: Definitely, and I'd also like to talk about the response from the region uh, uh, to this. Erica, when, when we discuss this whole issue. And I'm speaking specifically of organizations like the Community of Latin America and Caribbean States, or uh, uh, CELAC, which, you know, uh, is put together basically, uh, at least to me, it seems like as a response to a lot of this aggression that we see from the major imperial powers, certainly including uh, the United States. So uh, could you sort of explain what kind of organization a uh, CELAC is, sort of what are their principles and why these kinds of groups are necessary.
5: Yeah. As I noted, the centuries attempt uh, because uh, many of these nations have been held under a U.S. occupation at one time or another. Uh, for the centuries it comes by the U.S., uh, control of the region uh, through the soft power that I gave and the hard power of uh, South Southcom has led to 33 members of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, CLAC, to declare um, Caribbean and Latin America to be a zone of peace. And this declaration was made in Havana, Cuba, on January uh, 29th of 2014, and a few of, of, of those demands for the declaration during the summit uh, was that the Latin America and the Caribbean would be recognized as a zone of peace based on respect for the principles and rules of international law. Um, they would have permanent commitment to solve disputes to a peaceful manner. They would uh, commit with the region Excuse me, commitment of states of the region, uh, which make obligation not to intervene directly or inter- indirectly of international affairs and respect, uh, national sovereignty, equal rights and self-determination of peoples. So a lot of what they were seeking, uh, to declare and demand with the zone of peace, which the Black Alliance for Peace, which I am a member of and a co-coordinator of the Haiti America team, we are in full support and we're trying to revive, um, and and popularize the concept of a zone of peace uh, because we understand clearly that the U.S. has made peace uh, impossible for the region. There's been no possibility for peace. When we look at the constant coups, uh, the sanctions, the blockade, uh, the meeting with the, the attempts to separate nations or separate the Americas with the exclusion of Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, (laughs) excuse me, which have been three nations that have been very um, influential and helpful in the region, Um, that they have made it, the U.S. has made peace impossible. So this declaration um, is just a commitment of the states in the region to continue to promote um, self-determination and solidarity.
0: Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Erica, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Thursday, June 9th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to Give us a call, liberty by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth, we want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie,
1: let the folks know how they making holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also listen to us on Sputnik.Mave. That's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1398. In the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and we're streaming for your viewing pleasure live on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We
0: most certainly do. And uh, Jackie, I know here recently you watched the Live action Morbius film, which is a uh, Marvel film that came out to not a lot of fanfare, I have to say. I mean, I was I was interested when I saw that it was coming out and I watched the trailer. Um, I was first introduced to the Morbius character in the Spider-Man animated series. They used to come on Fox Kids. If 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 you were a real OG, then you know what I'm talking about. That that was really my introduction to like Spider-Man, and you know that's how I really got into uh, uh Marvel stuff um in general. I mean, around that time they had the and I think even before Spider-Man they had the X-Men cartoon and stuff like that. I mean, this mm-hmm. is classic yeah. stuff. And so Morbius was this character. If memory serves, he had like a a rare blood disease or something, mm-hmm. and he was trying to cure it. And I think other people who may have the same disease and in the process of doing that, turn himself into like a vampire. Yeah. And so I'm just wondering, <laughs> not, you know, how you felt about that. I mean, we were talking a little earlier about there's like a joke petition that's going around for people saying that they need to uh, they should bring it back for a third time. It was, It's, it's like <laughs> we were all busy that weekend, you know, just bring the movie back for a third time. I promise we'll go see it. But well, what did you think of it, Jackie?
1: If they bring it back a third time I'm going to be busy that weekend too. It was, it was I mean, I I generally give vampire movies a lot of latitude cuz I like vampire movies. I like, you know, the 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 uh, uh the boogeyman kind of movies, the the old legends, the werewolves, the vampires. I dig that kind of stuff and, you know, the zombies. It's escapism for me. Mm. That's that is how I, you know, don't deal with all of this crazy reality. I look at stuff that I know doesn't exist. But wouldn't it be great if, you know, we could turn into a vampire? You know, that kind of thing. And and I wanted to like this movie because I generally like, you know, the cartoon uh, turned or, or or the comic book movies, particularly, you know, the Marvel Universe movies. They, they are just really, really great. But this thing stunk so bad. It was just... And... I think Jared Leto was just bad in this role. Um, And I think that not every comic book or or yeah, not 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 every comic book story art can and should be made into a movie. Morbius, I think, was definitely one of those kinds of things. I mean, even even if like if we're, we're talking about like the X-Men movies like you, you mm-hmm. just mentioned, I think there are some story arcs that as much as I want to see them, I know they're not going to be made into a movie because they'll be terrible. Like the whole apocalypse yeah. arc of the X-Men. It's just they they got close. With days of future past, yeah, that's what but, but after that, it was like, "See, you should have stopped trying. and then and, and this is why this is why it's like there's there's you you can't have everything you get in the comic book universe in a movie right and and Morbius was really one of those examples. Nothing was good about this thing. I mean, it was just actually, the Morbius monster looked more like a big dog.
0: <laughs> Man.
1: It was just terrible, Sean.
0: Yeah, and it's funny, you know, that one um that one I mean, you're right, that X-Men Apocalypse movie was pretty terrible. And and that's like one of the essential um X-Men storylines. But I mean, you remember they they did the the Phoenix movie twice twice and, and you know, I didn't see right. the second one like I meant to but I never did I, I didn't I didn't get rave reviews I know uh, uh Todd Stephen Burroughs didn't care for it at the time you know he wrote a he wrote a thing about it and um but you know I remember that uh the x-men last stand movie uh the one good thing about that is we got to see the juggernaut on screen Live action for the first time. And so the to me, he's just like an exciting uh, uh, character to watch because he's just he's just plowing through stuff pretty much. and that's just so it's so satisfying.
1: He's like the thing, but not made of rocks
0: right, right. <laughs> yeah, and it, it's it's just like how my favorite my favorite avenger to watch in the live action movie is the Hulk because there's just something so cathartic about watching him tear stuff up and there's nothing that anyone can do. You know what I'm saying? And speaking of the thing, I know the other day Jackie, we were talking off air about um a a possible uh another uh fantastic four remake. Uh, I think possibly this time uh within the MCU as opposed to the other couple of times they tried with Sony and it just didn't pan out well ever. I I thought the one I thought the one with uh, Michael B Jordan as Johnny Storms. I kind of thought that maybe that one would be okay. It wasn't, though. And so <laughs> I I am all for them trying again as it pertains to the Fantastic Four. That's an important group of characters uh, in Marvel. And if they do it right, I mean, they could make, you know, I think a really cool contribution to the broader MCU. And it's like, when we look at when they do, when Marvel does stuff, Marvel Studios I'm talking about, when they do stuff like like Morbius or the Eternals and stuff like that, it seems like it kind of just seems like they're throwing stuff at the wall, you know, and because they kind of have a choice. Of like, OK, well, if this does well, then we can incorporate it into these other storylines that are already popular. But if not, we can just pretend like it didn't happen, <laughs> you know, and and it kind of doesn't matter. It's just kind of there. And uh, that might be the case with Morbius. I'm not sure what um, relevance the, the Eternals may have. I still haven't seen that. I haven't seen Shang-Chi either. Though I've actually heard good things about the Shang-Chi movie and the Seven Rings.
1: Yeah. I mean, the Eternals, I I actually did enjoy that uh, series and I I didn't expect to, but I didn't. And I think that it was good that I didn't expect anything about it because I didn't know anything (laughs) about it. I'm like, well, it's another Marvel series going to watch it, (laughs) you know, and uh, the the Chong movie is is really good. It is. It is very good. I, I liked it a lot. It's uh, there's a lot of action. Really great acting. The characters are not ridiculously unbelievable, um, which you know that can be. It's. I know that sounds weird for a comic book movie, right? For a mm-hmm. bunch of zero superhero, superheroes, but but there is enough realistic dialogue that that it doesn't sound, you know it doesn't seem like forced like a comic book movie you know for teenagers right yeah. um so it it was pretty good um you know my my concern is that you know we're just going to let uh uh uh, Marvel get away with everything. <laughs> we're, we're just we're just we're just going to uncritically let them make, uh, you know, movies about every single off brand, you know, third arc, bizarre Marvel character. And we're just going to eat it up like, you know, it's it's the best thing. And uh, but hey, what else? What else am I going to do?
0: Yeah, and here's the thing about that, because what Marvel Studios has proven that they can do well is to take lesser-known characters and make them really popular. The Guardians of the Galaxy are the best example
1: of that. I didn't like. the You didn't like. First why you like? Why you like the Guardians? I'm sorry, I didn't. The first one, I just, I was just like, mm. <laughs> you, you didn't. Think. And I was like, they're trying. They're trying too hard to get that raccoon to be likable. And and I was just the, the the little raccoon just really annoyed me because he was just it's like I know you're trying to be an edgy little character but you're just annoying. You talking about Rocket? I, yes, Man, I. like Rocket's cool, Jackie. I, see, no, no. He's he a talking was, raccoon who
0: can shoot. What's not to like? You feel me? Like I oh.
1: mean, I, I guess it's I I didn't like his little personality. That's what I guess. I know. I, I find the weirdest things to to find the weirdest reasons, to, but I really just did not like the first one. But the second one, I dug. I, mm-hmm. I dug. I dug the second one. But I mean, I, I you know, I just w- when I saw the trailers for Guardians of the Galaxy, the first thing I thought was, great, they're trying to get us to like a talking raccoon.
0: <laughs> I'm okay with
1: that. <laughs> I'm with it. So I was biased against it from the beginning, but but I was worn over a little bit by Groot, so you know it kind of evened out. I think
0: Groot, Groot is is the goat. Groot, Groot, Groot was the glue that that holds that thing together. Like, and see, I think that that sort of shows what they can do with 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 characters when they frame them a certain way. Groot is a sentient tree who can only say his name. But he's one of the most popular uh, aspects of the of the Guardians. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, you know, I think that they might be about to um, come out with a movie sometime about. uh, Oh, what's that group called with Black Bolt the Inhumans? Really? Yeah. I I think I saw some scuttlebutt and this might just be uh, rumors. But I think I heard some scuttlebutt that they might be doing a live action thing because they had that short lived TV show. But like it didn't it didn't really go well. You know what I'm saying, yeah. and uh, and also it's been confirmed that Miss Marvel is coming out soon too. The yeah. uh, the Kamala Khan character. <laughs> why not? Well, why are you like Miss why are you like Miss Marvel?
1: I, I, I think I'm I think I'm biased against youth. I think mm. that's what it is. I think I'm tired of seeing you know younger. And I get why the, you know the theaters. I get why producers uh, do this. They're they are pulling in a younger audience and that's fine. But you know what? If I can middle age, superheroes matter too. Yeah. You know, come on.
0: And see, the weird thing is when you talk about comic books and how characters age, it kind of, it's weird because it's like, depending on the, like the universe or like which earth they're on mm-hmm. can depend on like, because a lot of these characters just kind of stayed the same age for years. Yeah um and then maybe at some point they became adults or, or 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 whatever or got a little older you know what i mean just like uh like at the end of uh i think it was avengers endgame when they had you know old man cap as they call him the aged captain america like that was based on stuff that really happened in the comic you know what i'm saying and uh Ricky Ryan in the chat, shout out to the me Necessary chat. I think she was talking about the um, Fantastic Four movie. She was saying they should leave them alone. Now they've had multiple attempts to try and have failed each time.
1: That's what I'm saying, Ricky. But you gotta give them one more shot, no, though. No, we don't. But no, that was don't. because,
0: like, I, like the timing wasn't right. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's I don't know. I feel like it's a good time. To give it one more shot. If this next Fantastic Four <laughs> don't pop, they should bury it. I mean, salt the earth so nothing ever grows there again. Just you, you can't.
1: Let's just throw it all to the wall because you know the empire is crumbling. So might as well.
0: <laughs> I Yo, just, I so. I see people in the chat talking about um the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. No. I, I, well, listen, I wasn't <laughs> no I I wasn't terribly interested in seeing the first one. I haven't seen it, but the second one has knuckles in it. So why are you looking at me like that? You don't know <laughs> knuckles.
1: I do. I just.
0: <laughs> knuckles, I mean, look, knuckles. And you know, the interesting thing about knuckles, like rumor has it that he was originally supposed to be Jamaican. So the, and like his hair was supposed to be like locks. Really? Yeah, but they ended up they just ended up uh, uh, scrapping it. I always loved uh, Knuckles as a character in the game. I thought he was cool. I thought he was a good foil for the more kind of lighthearted uh thing of Sonic or whatever. And it's got Jim Carrey in it, who I was a huge fan of as a kid. Okay. But you like? You didn't like? You didn't like Fire
1: Marshall Bill? No, I loved Fire Marshall <laughs> Bill. Let me tell you something. <laughs> I lo- I mean, you know, that might be a redeeming quality. I don't know. I generally stay away from. I- I'll give Marvel and comic book movies a shot, but I generally stay away from movies based on video games. Well, you you're
0: correct in that because they're typically pretty terrible. <laughs> The Mario Brothers. Oh, my God. Mortal Kombat. Jesus. And I think, the and, and let me tell you something. I went to, Mortal Kombat's my favorite game of all time. I went and saw that in the theater and the sequel.
1: Oh, my God. And, and
0: I actually think the first one might have did pretty well. And when they came out with that last one, like, a couple of years ago, I remember we talked about it on the show. That was pretty bad. But I watched it, and I'm going to watch the next one. It's Mortal Kombat. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh... Hey, big uh, big teal says the last, the latest Doctor Strange was too much cultural appropriation. Oh, oh what do you mean by that? Really? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm interested in what you mean by that, because huh. I I 100 plan on go seeing Doctor Strange. I love the Doctor Strange character. Um, there's a there's a a, a character that um will be that I know will be brought into the this this latest Doctor Strange movie. That I'm very excited to see. I mean, I'll just say it: it's Doctor Xavier. Yes. It's Doctor Xavier. Uh, yes. It's and and I feel okay saying that because I mean the the trailers are out there. We know it's him. You see his hand on his you know armrest oh, no. on his wheelchair. <laughs> yep, we know that's yep. him. And so what that means is the X Men are coming to town. They're coming to the yes. MCU. Now yes. I'm interested in what that looks like because if I'm not mistaken, I think Hugh Jackman basically said that he was done playing Wolverine.
1: Which makes me angry. Hurts yeah. Feelings. Yeah, he was great he was amazing which opens the door to a bad depiction of Wolverine and a bad depiction of Wolverine destroys any X-Men anything it mm-hmm. just it just does
0: yeah and uh, and that's and maybe and that's a part of the reason why I'm willing to give the fantastic four no. the shot cuz so I'm, I'm like you know what i'm just saying <laughs> but cuz because, because Jackie this is a time of opportunity we could be seeing all these fire characters just you know interacting it's just it's like just like different. remember the first time we all saw that that epic very comic booky uh battle during end game with like all the heroes on one side and yeah. all the yep. uh uh you know you know Thanos and his crew on the other that was so amazing dog when cap cap got Mjolnir and he's got the hammer and everybody's you know everybody's doing everybody they're working their gimmick to use pro wrestling language yeah. they're working all at once and it's exactly like when you read a comic book and they do those those big two but, panel yeah. you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. like that that was that that's the most comic booky moment of almost like any comic book movie so that's what I'm saying we could be leading up to that with even new characters you know what I'm that, saying
1: but it but no. Nope. Okay,
0: (laughs) (laughs) but I definitely feel what you're saying with some of the younger characters like, you know, Kamala Khan is, you know, kind of whatever. But definitely you kind of forget that over the years they just kind of keep adding people Mm -hmm. like long after you stop paying attention. Right. And I watch I'm an infrequent comic book reader, but I consume a lot of comic book content. Like I watch the movies, I watch the animated shows, the animated DC's animated Movies are fire. Y'all have heard me say that before. Um, watch a lot of YouTube videos, and it'd be stuff like, you know, the top 20 newest X-Men. I'm like, there's 20 new X-Men?
1: Why? Like, it stuff does like does that. It does not need to be 20 new yeah. X-Men. And at this point,
0: like, what what new powers are there? You know what I'm saying? They're like, I, I don't know. I feel like at a certain point, you're just gonna start riffing on powers that, like, already exist. But, I mean, you know, that that's just how it rolls. That's just how it rolls. But I haven't even... I'm trying to think of the last movie I went and saw in the theater. I can't even remember, but it don't matter. But you know it's 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 definitely uh an interesting time. Uh, I'm exaggerating a little big deal with twenty, but it's it was probably <laughs> like ten, but uh even still, it's more than uh, uh I figured there would be, and it's just it's that thing where like I see it, and I'm immediately not interested just give me that same old crew and I just want to watch (laughs) them save the universe over and over again. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour. On that note, here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Washington D.C., we'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary
0: Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Luqman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open to 521 1320 That's 202-521-1320. Myself and my co-host here, Jackie Luqman, just chopping it up. You know, Jackie... June is uh, Black Music Month. Mm -hmm. It's Black Music Appreciation Month. And it was funny. I was just looking up some stuff on it. And actually, (laughs) apparently Joe Biden uh, formally recognized June as uh, uh, Black Music Month, like uh, back during the top of the month for for whatever that's worth. Mm. And this is going to feel like a hard pivot. But, I mean, we've been talking about like pop culture and popular media. And so I want to talk about Kanye West. And (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think we do. Okay. Um, and, and I was trying to look up some like, you know, concrete, like newsworthy article to really kind of discuss with him. But I mean, you know, it's just all the same celebrity gossip stuff about mm-hmm. Kim Kardashian and Pete Davidson and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I got to say, I was recently watching um, a YouTube documentary, which I love. I love those YouTube documentaries about it was about Kanye and Kim's marriage. And it, it takes like the long view, like it starts from Kanye on his come up in music and also similarly Kim Kardashian's trajectory and stuff like that, which I don't think I was aware of. Like, I don't think I knew that Kim was um, Paris Hilton's stylist Oh, I and that, that. He, she had kind of been in, you know, Kanye's orbit. Uh, uh, before, if I'm not mistaken, it's because at one point, Kim was working for Brandy, who's Brandy's brother, Ray, Ray J. Jay. So, you know, mm. if, if you know, then you kind of see what's happening with that and then see how, how Paris blew up and then how Kim blew up and kind of how it all flows from there. But what blew my mind about it is that uh, I did not know because we know that Kanye called himself running for president, right? And, and, and I looked mm-hmm. it up. If, if what I saw was accurate, he got like 60,000 votes. and uh, But he actually put money into like a campaign infrastructure. And I'm talking about like millions of dollars. Really? Yeah, and apparently this was a big part of what drove a wedge between him and Kim that eventually led up to divorce yeah and she and she had you know she stayed with him through the trump stuff now the trump stuff was a big part of it too you know what I mean yeah but um but the running for president was really uh it, it was pretty wild and, and and that made the whole thing even crazier to me to where he I mean the reports I saw said he put something like six point eight million dollars into it wow and I'm like where did that go when,
1: into what what was the infrastructure what what happened yeah. to it where did uh,
0: and, and particularly when you remember that he kept, like, missing deadlines yeah. for stuff to, like, actually fit, like, to, ha- to be printed on the ballot. And so when he went and voted for himself, he had to write himself in. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, just, uh, it's just a wild thing. And he he is endlessly frustrating to me because for a, for a while, he was my favorite rapper for years, up until 808s and Heartbreak because... I was expecting like a rap album, but I don't think I was fully aware of like how, like, you know, that he was in a bad place mentally and emotionally. Mm-hmm. He broke up with his longtime girlfriend and fiance and his mama had just died. Mm-hmm. And so he's going through all of that. And that's what you hear in 808s and heartbreaks. But I didn't want that. I wanted a rap album. You <laughs> know what I'm saying? I didn't get that. So I kind of uh, uh, fell off with him. But with Kanye, it's like you appreciate him for his talent, and you want to uh, criticize him for just all the, the garbage that he does. The slavery is a choice, the yeah. Trump stuff, mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. you know, the running for president, all of that. But then you remember that this is a person who is seriously grappling with um, uh, serious mental health issues. You know, we know that he's uh, a bipolar. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's something that a lot of people deal with. It's not an easy thing. Um, and also, truthfully, like still grieving. Yeah. Like, I, you know, and in, in this documentary, it even showed a video of Connie on stage at his concert uh, uh, talking about and he's like, oh, people are saying you should you should take some time off. You should go home, you know, go home to what? Like, do we realize that we have watched this man have breakdown after breakdown after breakdown
1: in public, in public? Yeah. And And the thing that's wild to me, Sean. Not not being as invested in his, you know, his his talent because he is talented. I'm going to give him that. You know, he is incredibly talented, uh, talented. But realizing that, you know, people are so invested in Kanye, the brand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm talking about people who are around him, like his his literal physical circle of friends, family, people, whomever um, that rather than be a cushion for this brother. Mm. It it feels like he has not. I mean, from the outside looking in, it, it feels like he doesn't have a cushion. Like there's nobody around him pulling him aside and saying, maybe that's not the best thing to do. Or, you know, maybe Because you're feeling this way and, you know, maybe this is a better way to channel, you you know, whatever it is you're feeling or, you know, how about we just not go on tour, (laughs) Mm. you know, or or how about we just not, you know, delve into fashion designing and, and, you know, because there is for for people and and this is and I say this from experience for people who are bipolar, who are highly creative. Mm. It is hard to to control the bipolar disorder all by itself. And then then you've got that creative part of your brain that never shuts off. And then if the bipolar disorder is controlled well with medication, then sometimes that creativity gets crushed and that's frustrating. So then they try to, to force something. So I see this going on with Kanye and I'm like, yeah, that's I, I I see that. And and because so few people understand that struggle, that bipolar struggle, yeah. they they don't they really don't know how to kind of respond. But I mean, I, I also <clears throat> excuse me, feel like sometimes um rich and powerful people just don't like being told no. Yeah. I mean, I, I just think that that's, that's just really the case. It's like, you know, when you are somebody like Kanye West and you have this immense talent that really is, I think it's kind of unmatched in some ways, you know, who, who's going to tell you what you can't do? Exactly. <laughs> you know, you know, and but then when you do something that is outside of the talent that you've nurtured and it doesn't go well and it doesn't succeed, then, then, then again, I go back to the people around you. It's like, how do the people around you respond? Are are they standing there going, see, See, told you, you know, or are they a soft place to land for you? Understanding that, you know, that's just a part of life for everybody. But this letdown is extra hard for you. I mean, it's 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 a whole As as much as the extra stuff he did was so annoying. I also understood that, you know, that guy is struggling with his own brain. Yeah. And and nobody really knew how to deal with that.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and this and for me, this is not even to like justify like the stuff that he does but i just feel like it is important to sort of contextualize some of these things um excuse me we got a caller on the line here tamra tell us what's on your mind hello hey go ahead
6: oh hi hi jackie and sean um i really appreciated your uh your movie review uh, earlier and i wanted just to contribute my two cents about um about the Doctor Strange movie, the latest one. Um, I think it's called Madness.
0: No. Multiverse of Madness.
6: And I saw someone in the chat talking about cultural appropriation. Uh, and I would say that is true to some extent. And, like, there is some basis for it. And just, just hear me out. Because it, it's a bit about, like, um, antiquity studies. And there's this, like, book... That I really recommend. Um, it's called Black Athena. Martin Brunel? Yes, yes. The Afro-Asiatic roots of classical civilization, mm-hmm. and in there, it talks about like how it's often taken for granted how like Greek classic culture is something that seems to be culturally and specific to them, without necessarily looking at like the cultural like interdependence in the area because like right, Greece is pretty close to uh, Northern Africa. And even words like in Greek have African origin. And so I guess where I'm going with that is just being like how in the movie, the main characters or the protagonists, the good guys, are, predom- are predominantly Western Europeans, even though the traditions that they're using and studying are from ancient Asian traditions. And the only time you see an Asian person is the one I forget the character's name. He's in the library.
1: Yeah, His name is literally Wong.
6: Even the clothing that um the I I forget her name. She's the one who uses like both the evil and good that they didn't know beforehand. Mm-hmm. Um, to like fight off like the other I guess group of people who use only the dark side. And even the garment that she's wearing, that's not something you find traditionally in European culture. And so that's what I think where one could begin to think about cultural cultural appropriation, but also how it's very normalized. Like, you don't think about what Dr. Strange is wearing, too. And the kind of, like, where does this clothing and aesthetics come from? Like, what group of people, they also have a cultural specificity that's not Western or European. So that's what I wanted to say. And thank you so much for
0: taking my call. Well, thank you for calling in, Tamara. I really appreciate it. Hope to hear from you again soon. And yeah, you know, I ain't thought about Black Athena in forever. Black Athena was interesting because here you have Martin Bernal, a white scholar, making the same arguments about history and the African roots of civilization that Dr. Yosef Benyakinen was making and Dr. John Henry Clark, John G. Jackson, Ivan Van Sertema, Mm -hmm. all of these African-centered scholars, these black scholars, you know, uh, uh, Chancellor Williams, you know, they've been making these arguments for years and had been brushed off as like making up history, basically. But now here's this white scholar that was making a a roughly the same sort of sort of joint. And, you know, what what you're saying, because you were mentioning how like um, the Doctor Strange character is literally just named Wong. I mean, that made me think about like the the deep history of racism in Marvel. I mean, it's true in comics, period. But it's interesting how um, Marvel, in its movies, has kind of kind of turned it on its ear. Like, for instance, if people remember in, um, I think it was was that Iron Man three that had the Mandarin in it. I think so. it, it was two yeah. or three. Now, see, if, if you look up the Mandarin, like the actual character, like he was back in the day, he was just like a standard issue, stereotypical, like evil Asian guy. You know what I mean? With the little beard and, mm-hmm. and, and, and everything. But in the movie, he's like, you know, a white guy with like a, a ponytail who is supposedly like at the head of some terrorist organization but it's not clear did he really do it it's like a lot of smoking flag
1: kind of uh, CIA propped up kind of yeah just very
0: odd yeah and so it's just interesting to sort of to see them uh, 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 do things like that and uh, I mean they seem to have done a pretty good job it's fun but when we talk about cultural appropriation I also thought about that scene that people like in uh, Black Panther when Killmonger was like (laughs) I'm taking all of these artifacts right and he's not wrong for doing that. Nope. I I support the returning of these African artifacts back to uh, where they belong. Excuse me. Although I am still not Team Killmonger. What? I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm sorry. I
1: can't. I can't. Sean. Jackie. Our, our entire professional and possibly personal relationship <laughs> <laughs> hinges on your justification for not being Team Killmonger.
0: Well, okay. I put it to you like this. First of all, and y'all correct me if I'm wrong,
1: Killmonger
0: was a mercenary for imperialism, right? But he didn't know. Well, well hold up. He didn't know. He, Come on, he know Jackie. Come on. He know better. He know better. he didn't know? He didn't look like he didn't look like a fool to me. He looked like he knew exactly <laughs> what he was doing. And let me say that he had a he had a legit gripe. See, that's what he he did have a legit gripe, but the reason I'm not team Killmonger is because He wasn't motivated by principle he was motivated by vengeance and so that well well, see that's important because that's gonna color uh, what his rule as the king of Wakanda looks like and so he wasn't talking about well we need to open Wakanda up for the first time in history let's take these portals down or whatever it is that keeps people out Uh, obviously this entire continent has been struggling for centuries under the yoke of slavery, <laughs> colonialism, neocolonialism, resource exploitation, and every other uh, conceivable bad thing that you can think of. And they was just over there vibing, sitting on top of a, a mountain of vibranium, right. just, just having a right. good old time that- by themselves. Mm-hmm. So he didn't do all of that. He wasn't saying, well, let's, let's use this wealth and this technology to raise up the living standard of the the continent. His thing is, well, I'm just going to send out a bunch of these weapons <laughs>
1: and because he wants people.
0: chaos. Well, yes, he and- he he wants the rest of the
1: world to feel the pain that he feels, and that's not. I don't see how that's admirable. But you know, as I said at the beginning of the show, Sean Blackman, I watch the movies I watch because I want to escape the realities of this world. <laughs> <laughs> So I usually go for the people who, yes, are trying to burn down the world. So yeah. I mean kill killmonger definitely I, it's You know, when you look at it, at his character from a real world perspective, that's exactly like the situation we're in. Right. We we make these decisions, become agents of the empire because we literally don't know any better because we have been forsaken by, you know, uh, uh, our 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 uh, uh, our history was taken from us. We were ripped from our culture and all that kind of stuff. And when we know better, of course, we we learn that the answer is not to go and burn down the rest of the world we can't you know an eye for an eye does leave us both blind um but it does really feel good <laughs> i feel what you're saying i mean i look i i was team thanos i'm sorry I was oh, wow just like i'm like you know especially when i found especially since i knew in the comic that people came back mm-hmm. it was like yeah, make them disappear for a while. Okay, only <laughs> really, like five
2: years. I mean, it's like, just five oh, years. What's well, five years for like a
1: What you know? Yes. Yeah, so yeah, I'm 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 not the one to teach your children um, and your young ones moral lessons from from movies. I'm not <laughs> the one.
0: Yeah. Uh, Big Teal says, Sean, could you list two titles or authors on the subject matter of Greeks appropriating ancient African culture? There's a couple off the top of my head there's a couple of works by Frank Snowden, who back in the day was a uh, professor at Howard. There's a blacks in antiquity, Ethiopians in the Greco Roman experience. And there's before a color prejudice, the ancient view of blacks, which is a little different, but I think it kind of uh, touches on that. I'm also thinking of um, John G. Jackson, uh, his Christianity before Christ that, that touches on uh, some of that as well. Uh, Oh, we got a call on the line here. Kier, tell us what's on your mind.
2: Hello, Jackie. Hello, Sean. Um, good afternoon. So I've just been doing some thinking lately. Um, I'm a new father, and I've just kind of just been examining the world around myself. And I've kind of been seeing that America kind of just has violence um, indoctrinated in every facet of its being, whether it's raising children. Sometimes I'll have um, people from um, Gen X and Boomers. They call me a soft parent just because I let my kid have their own opinion or listen to their um feelings rather than just go immediately to beating them or just like when we're in public school systems, it's always um, focusing around punishment and how we can solve things with violence or just um, punishing and discipline. And then I kind of think about how that trickles into all the mass shootings we see or just um, random violence. Um, The other day in my town where I live, there was a shooting in front of the grocery store, but it was just because two guys got into a disagreement. Um, in the road and then they pulled over after they were arguing for about five minutes and then they shot each other. So it's kind of interesting to me to how the culmination of all of our solutions in this country is violence or um, physical harm, whether we go into talk about it or not. And then those are some of the things that I bring up when with work colleagues and stuff. to how we talk about violence in America and sometimes we make those connections and sometimes they don't but it has been interesting to me. And then also one last thing um, before, it's kind of off topic, but um, I've been watching a lot of zombie movies lately. I like them a lot. And do y'all think that in a non-capitalist society, the zombie apocalypse could be solved because when you don't have like individualism and you're thinking about like a community approach, do you think it would be a better quote-unquote apocalypse or would it still just be like The Walking Dead? That's kind of like a lighthearted question to ask, but it's just something on my mind. Thanks for taking my call. Have a good day, y'all.
0: Well, thanks for calling in, Kier. Really appreciate you hitting us up. Hope to hear from you uh, again soon. And first of all, congratulations on uh, being a new dad, uh, my friend. That's that's great news. Uh, post-capitalist zombies. I'm going to keep it real. Um, if the undead are walking around eating our flesh, that's that's going to pretty much work out the same under any <laughs> system. I'm, 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 I'm going to keep it funky. Although, you know what? I don't know. Maybe not, because I'm thinking, like, okay, if if we're in a better structured society, even understanding that the US under capitalism is very militarized. And, uh, but even with that, like, we've been having this conversation about, like, you know, I mean, cops won't even go after. uh, a, a living uh, active shooter. And so I'm not sure them going up against the undead uh, would happen at all. And so what I'm thinking is if we have a better structured, better organized, better centralized society, then maybe, uh, uh, you know, the the zombie threat to the undead uh, hordes will uh, can be sort of taken care of more uh, uh, efficiently. But, you know, we got to we got to achieve socialism before we see what happens with the zombies, I think. But we're going to go to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik and Watch DC. We'll be right back. So please stay with us.
2: By Any Means Necessary.
0: Welcome back. To so by any means necessary, you on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lupeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202 521 1320. That's 2 1320. I am here. Jackie Lupeman is here. And Jackie, I wanted to pick up on the other part of Kier's question. Talking about how the, excuse me, how the violence of American culture, because American culture is fundamentally violent and it is fundamentally putative, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To, to the point that he was making about, you know, how he chooses to, to, to raise his child and what discipline looks like and all these sorts of things, which I see a lot of people sort of grappling with now. You know, a lot of us were raised, you know what I'm saying, with whoopings. Yep. As they called it when when mm-hmm. I was a kid. But people are, you know, they're really questioning like the not only the effectiveness of it, but like the, like the ethics. Mm-hmm. Like, is it ethical to beat this child who more than likely can't understand what the issue is and just inflicting this pain on this small human? Uh, As opposed to like trying to understand what their issue is and trying to help them understand. You know what I mean? I'm not a parent. I don't really have like a a dog in that fight per se, but, but I definitely understand sort of why people would want to challenge that because it does show up in sick ways in our culture. I mean, look at all the police shows, all the cop shows. Think of all the, the, the movies that come out that are glorifying, uh, frankly, like imperialist war. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if you get a good anti-war film here and there or, you know, like a platoon or a jarhead, those are few and far between. You know, it, more often than not, it's it's American Sniper. It's right. it's right. Jack Ryan. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's it's all those uh, types of things. And I think there's a connection between the violence and the putative nature of um american society and i often think of the putative nature of this culture through the lens of like uh like law enforcement and mass incarceration and how there's like a it's like a retribution Mm -hmm. sort of base yeah of how people think of quote-unquote crime and punishment of course we know things like crime law these are things that you know, only have meaning because of the class character of a given society. So how that looks under capitalism is, is going to have a, 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 particular, a particular kind of, of impact. And so when you have a culture that suggests that if a person does something wrong, violates the law, uh, that they should just be just pummeled into the ground. And not only that, we know that under incarceration over the years, the different education programs have been taking away, you know, the things that really prepare people to actually uh, re-enter society have slowly but surely been defunded, mm-hmm. and so now people get. Uh, uh, out from incarceration, no better off really than they were when they go back in. And that's why we have this issue with recidivism because at a certain point, I mean, people, you know, they may attempt to go on the straight and narrow, but if you can't uh, find nothing worthwhile on the straight and narrow, then you very well may go back to what you know. Right. And this is what contributes to uh, uh, recidivism. And so it's just, it's, it's wild how under this system they'll take away Uh, First of all, they'll spend all this money just to incarcerate all these people. Mm -hmm. Right. Which costs, I mean, the studies have been done. It costs more to incarcerate people than it is to simply provide these uh, basic services, right? Mm -hmm. But see, you create a society where that's okay. Like, oh, they don't they don't have adequate health care and the only doctors they got are these, you know, butchers and quacks that can't get uh uh jobs at a real hospital. Ah, whatever, they deserve it. Right. You know, they right. you know, every day they they sleep in a room that's about as big as probably most of our bathrooms. Ah, whatever. You know, they spend months and months and months inside solitary confinement, even though the United Nations says that's cruel and unusual punishment and has a detrimental impact on mental health. Ah, whatever. You know, they did the crime, they gotta do the time. It's not a hotel, blah, blah. Blah. And, you know, for me, it goes back to a question of well, what kind of society do we want? Like, do we want a society where people are able to have a, a kind of holistic health and be functioning people that can contribute and interact with other human beings in a healthy way? Because if you do, then that doesn't look like what we have here in the United States. Mm-hmm. This, it's, it's almost like the whole of the superstructure. Of this country and the capitalist system that undergirds it, it's 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 designed. Since it doesn't center humanity, then so much of this system really just ends up crushing humanity, or or, or sort of wringing the humanity out of people. Yeah, through so many uh uh different ways. And then we turn around and wonder why we have all these shootings and why we have all these issues and why people are, you know, straight up killing each other, like the caller was saying, over a, a basic disagreement. And see it, it and it becomes and when people discuss this, it becomes about like everything else except the capitalist culture out of which all of this emanates. You know what I mean?
1: And you know what? Everything, everything, absolutely everything you just described and everything uh, Kier described, even though he didn't realize he was connecting the two issues he raised, you know, the violence in society and, and the way, you know, he is he is shamed for not raising his child as a reflection of that violent society and zombie movies. Believe it or not, they're all the same thing, because if you if you know the history of the zombie movie like I do, because I love them, um, (laughs) George Romero's first zombie movie, Night of the Living Dead, was a. A, a reflection of the social commentary of the time it was the zombies represented everything that was eating away at at american society mm. at the time the 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 anti-war protests uh the women's rights uh protests the the you know the uprising of of women against you know gender uh and and uh, gender uh, gender discrimination the racial protests at the time so That was the original movie like the Americans, the the zombies were a reflection of all of the things that were wrong in American society that had been allowed to fester. To the point where now they're eating American society. Mm-hmm. So as as you go on in this string of uh, zombie movies that that were that he made and and that were inspired by him, you know, from Night of the Living Dead, Day of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, you know, uh, all all the other ones that and the remakes that came after it, the zombies were still the apocalypse. The zombie apocalypse uh, apocalypse itself was still a reflection. On the social ills in American society, like in one movie, I think it was uh, *Day of the Dead* or, or uh, yeah, no *Dawn of the Dead*, where that was this was the remake with Ving Rhames in it. They're trapped in a shopping mall, and the zombie, the zombie apocalypse happens. They're all in a shopping mall. That was a a uh, um, a a, a, a an, an examination on consumerism. And how consumerism has turned people into zombies and is really, you know, destroying uh, mm-hmm. eating at American society. There was another movie, I think it's Day of the Dead, that takes place literally in a missile silo. They are trapped in a missile silo. So there's obviously, you know, the the uh, a reflection of militarism run amok. That is destroying society, eating American society from the outside. So so when you look at the way violence that created this society has been allowed to uh, seep into the soil, into the, the 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 ethos, the the mythology, the ideology, the the history, the curriculum, the politics, the religion in this country. And how it has literally eaten at what once maybe, I don't know when, but, but maybe when the indigenous people were originally here, what, what once could have been a, a healthy and vibrant soul of a nation, all of that has eaten into this country and has created this rot that is at this point out of control. Mm-mm. There's there's no stopping this right now, very much like a zombie horde. I know it sounds weird. I know it sounds really silly. But when George Romero wrote his first movie, Night of the Living Dead, he really was making an allegory um, about the internal social ills at the root of American society that is eating it alive. And it has only continued, um, and and that theme has continued with every zombie movie. Because honestly, it hasn't stopped in this society.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that um, the original Night of the Living Dead was like a, a political uh, statement. And I was just thinking, you know, zombies, of course, are scary. Like on their fa- like on its face, as a concept, a zombie is terrifying. But what really gets me. Because at some point in these movies and TV shows about zombies, like the zombies became smart. That's really scary. Like, I mean, time was, if you could just find um, a solid enough building then the zombies will just, like, keep bumping up against it, and you'll basically be fine. But nah, now they unlocking the door, they climbing the fence, they, they jimmy in the lock open, they calling in the zombie locksmith, like, they, you know what I'm saying, they got a battering ram from somewhere, because they didn't ate up the SWAT team. All of that. And I'm like, nah, no, that's, that's different. They're not just, like, shuffling along, they're, like, running after you. To, and I ain't that fast, man. Like, I'm like, uh, I might be done for if this joint happened for real. Yeah, I um, would be eaten. I would. Yeah. I, <laughs> you just might just well be like, you know what, though, just, just here, like, just, just take go. it. Just 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 nibble. Nibble right there. Uh, uh, Ricky Ryan in the chat uh, was on the parenting piece. She said, parenting not being communal, allowing parents to take a break builds up frustrations that leads to reactions. So I'm thinking child abuse should be looked at community, communally. Um I agree with that. And I mean I think that this raises sort of the uh, the uh, uh, there's a class character to this. She also said it's because general parenting tips are really not for the black working class parent that does not have the extra 45 minutes to calm a child down or does not have the space to create a calming corner. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and here we are again. And, you know, because, you know, child care in this country. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. I'm uh, I'm looking at this piece from Fortune magazine that was published in January of this year. The headline says the cost of child care has risen by 41 percent during the pandemic. With families spending up to twenty percent of their salaries, this is to take care of kids. That's
1: and and that's that's one child.
0: That's That's
1: one child. That's
0: one kid. Uh,
1: Cause they don't they don't charge. They don't give you a group rate. Yeah,
0: you don't no. get no Groupon with that. No. no. <laughs> and uh, you know it's funny because I actually not that long ago, some friends of mine they're married and they have three kids, and they were telling me they wanted to uh, move up to the D.C. area. I'm like. Yo, that's cool, but, um, Mm-mm. and I'd love to have you, but just, and I say the same way, Like, just know the childcare up here, Mm-mm. crazy.
1: You're going to have to leave your kids <laughs> with your parents and right. visit them on the weekends because you cannot afford childcare for three children in Washington, D.C. if you are not rich. Right. That is just true.
0: Right, and 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 that's just a fact. And so, and, and again, that's the thing about this capitalist system. Something as fundamental and crucial and imperative taking care of kids something that is not only like a societal good but it's also a necessary in terms of the parents having to work and all of that but when you have a system where you only have a right to that which you can't afford well now we see people basically just getting hit over the head because at the end of the day because you got to put your kids somewhere you got to put them somewhere so like what you gonna do and so this is what People uh, uh uh so often are forced to do. Certainly uh poor and working parents are so often put in that position. It's like how people criticize people, like if they're if their uh kids, you know, uh wind up, you know, in a bad place legally, wrong side of the law, stuff like that. And they're talking about, well, we're all the parents. I mean, they're off working two and three jobs. Exactly. Just trying to survive. Right. And so you see the trickle-down effect of how capitalist exploitation just uh i mean can just destroy family structures Mm -hmm. and human relationships i feel like i say this all the time but i'm gonna keep saying it this system vulgarizes and ruins the way that we interact and engage with each other as people and also in the way that we um conceive of ourselves. And so the trickle down effect is like with well, the parents working all the time just to make ends meet. With so the parents all stressed out, they're not getting the kind of rest that a human being needs. They can't spend the kind of time with their families that they want to. And so now the kids uh you know are wallowing out a little bit and it just goes on and on and on and on. And so it it it's it it becomes pathologized particularly on a racial aspect. When people talk about issues in the black community or in the Latin community or in this or that uh, community. And it's always seemingly framed in such a way to where there's something intrinsically wrong with the group of oppressed people. And the way that they hide it is to say it's a quote, cultural problem, right? There's not an issue with racist policing. There's an issue with culture, Culture. quote unquote. So what you're saying is there's just something in the DNA of black folks that makes us act up, and therefore, the cops are justified in brutalizing and, and killing us. So there's that white supremacy that's so um, central to the fabric of this country that seems to always come up uh, uh, one way or the other. And so this is why traditionally, even in black communities, there were, you know, a lot of informal sort of communal um, arrangements for taking care of the kids. I mean, people hear this all the time because it's true. You know, like back in the day, you know, anybody on the block could beat you. You know what I'm saying? Anybody on the block could punish you. You feel what I'm saying? It wasn't just your parents. As a kid, you know that the community is is looking after you and that you're not just you're not the exclusive property of your parents or your family. And I use that word purposefully because when we talk about, you know, the quote unquote nuclear family, women, kids are considered property. Right. And so it's not that situation. It's a situation of, well, we're all a part of this process of raising these kids and keeping the the community intact, but the contradictions of this system can make that very, very difficult. So now people are getting priced out and displaced and gentrified from where they were. And so, you know, the community, as maybe we once understood it becomes a more rare thing, but that's why we have to overturn this system so we can get these bonds back. But we're going to leave it there for today here on by any means necessary on radio, it Washington, D.C. We're back tomorrow with an all new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace.